On June 9th, uh, 2009, um, it was basically a routine flight between Rio de Janeiro and Charles de Gaulle, Paris. Um, you had an Air France, uh, Air France flight 447, um, which was an Airbus A330, um, was flying across the Mid-Atlantic. Um, early into the flight, uh, the pilots noticed that there was going to be a fairly significant storm front up ahead. Um, so they started talking about this and how they might go around it or go above it. But the storm was of the size that it was going to be difficult to go around it. So they had to kind of navigate a safe path through the storm. Now at this point, everything is normal in the in the cockpit. Everything is going fine. The captain, uh, the captain at the time, decided to go and take his rest break, and that would be that would be very normal as well. So you had two co-pilots uh, flying the flying the actual aircraft. Um, again, nothing unusual there. The autopilot was going to do all of the flying. They were just going to program in the safest route through the storm. Um, this would be very common, nothing unusual. And other planes on the night navigated the storm completely normally. Um, it was about uh, at this point where things started to get a bit interesting. Um, basically what happened was there was a very unique, as they approached the storm and they, they started flying through it, there was a very unique weather situation where this only happens in certain storms, at certain altitudes, in certain places on the planet. But basically, um, ice crystals started to form uh, on their pitot tubes. Now, for, for folks who aren't aware of what pitot tubes are, they're the tubes on an airplane that measure airspeed. And if they get clogged, uh, you don't know what speed you're doing. And one of the most important parameters for any aircraft is to know what your altitude is, uh, but your speed is very, very important as well. So at this point, all three pitot tubes clogged. Now the pilots didn't know this was happening and the only warning they got was their autopilot uh, kicked off. Now that would be a little unusual um, and they were getting a no, and basically no airspeed, uh, a no airspeed indicator. So that would have been puzzling at the time. Now you have to remember, this is at the middle of the night, there's no visual cues outside, moderate to severe turbulence and all of a sudden their autopilot goes off and the captain is asleep in the other room. Now, most situations, pilots would likely have called back the captain at this point, but they did not. Um, they continued flying the, the plane. They manually took over. Now, the important thing here is on an Airbus, if you can imagine a cockpit, if you've ever, if you've ever seen one, on Boeing aircraft, it's the big, it's the big uh, steering column. On an Airbus, it's a little joystick, and each pilot has a little joystick on, on the side of where they're, where they're sitting. For whatever reason, the co-pilot on the right-hand side uh, pulled back on the on the stick to increase altitude, but in that situation he he should not have pulled back because they're already flying at 34, 35,000 feet. You actually can't you can't get much higher before you don't have enough airflow, so you would enter an aerodynamic stall, which would be kind of if you if you can imagine you know when you throw a paper airplane and it kind of reaches its zenith and then kind of you know twitter you know fl flutters down to the the floor. Um, basically that's what happened. They, they increased altitude. Um, to a point at which the airplane could no longer fly. So at that point, um, they have no airspeed, and all of a sudden they start getting stall warnings in the cockpit. Now the stall warning is a very, very audible mechanical noise voice that says stall, stall, stall. I think it, I think it blares maybe 76 times throughout the final few minutes of the flight. They never acknowledge the stall. The two co-pilots never, they never ever talk about the fact that the airplane has stalled. Um, they seem to be very confused what's going on. Um, 
And for whatever reason, uh, that co-pilot in the right-hand seat holds the stick back the entire time. Um, now, the interesting thing is, all pilots are trained that when you enter an aerodynamic stall, you put the engines at a certain degree or a certain percentage of thrust, and you point the nose down to gather airspeed. Um, that's so. If you read any of the accounts or any of the books on this particular crash, every pilot would say this was a very recoverable situation, a very recoverable situation. And um, but for whatever reason, that pilot did not do any of the things that they were trained to do in that situation. And really, it wasn't until very late in the crisis where um, the captain is finally called back. And when the captain gets in, I think they're about at 10,000 feet, something like that. There, he, he sits behind them and he's kind of trying to figure out what's going on. There, at that point, it becomes more and more difficult to recover the aircraft because there just isn't enough space between the altitude they're at and the ocean floor. And it isn't until 2,000 feet above the ocean floor the captain finally figures out he asks, um, put the nose down. He says, put the nose down. Of course, this is all in French and it's been translated into English. And the co-pilot in the right, uh, the co-pilot in the right-hand seat finally says, but I've been holding the stick back the entire time. And there's this kind of terrifying realization that, oh, what have we been doing? We've been doing the exact opposite of what we were supposed to be doing. It's a very harrowing conversation because, you know, everybody is killed on board, but you also see this this very simple situation degrade into this terrifying catastrophe among these trained individuals who should know exactly what to do. So what does an airplane crash in France have to do with coaching culture? This week on the pod, we have an interview with business professor Jamie O'Brien, who studies strategic change and organizational behavior. And we're gonna talk with him about using case studies and stories such as this to engage your team in conversations that can tease out lessons in leadership, in teamwork, and all kinds of other things that can have a dynamic effect on your program culture. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. And every week in 30 minutes or less, we're giving you transformational leadership tools and strategies. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive On Challenge, which provides mentorship for coaches to help them grow as a coach and build their culture. You can learn more at thriveonchallenge.com. You're listening to episode 103, How to Use Case Studies to Build Culture and Leadership with Dr. Jamie O'Brien. So as Nate said, we have a very special guest on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Jamie O'Brien of St. Norbert's College. He's not just a researcher and a business professor, but he's a dear friend of mine, for over 12 years, we played uh, American football in Ireland back in the day, and we actually won three straight national championships together with the Limerick Vikings. Now, the parallels between the business world and the sports world are many, and Jay has some incredible insights for us today. So let's get right into my conversation with Jamie O'Brien. So I want to dive in a few minutes into more of the research you've got around behavioral change, but uh, but first... I want to talk about your reputation as a professor. All right, so I actually <laughs> this I didn't know that. Well, it's it's all it's probably not. Yeah, don't believe everything you read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had got on to ratemyprofessor.com and I I said I'd yeah. look you up. Um, you have a better rating than my dad. My dad's a you know a physics professor of forty years. He just recently retired, but you're a four point six out of five, right? So that's a strong okay. that's a strong rating. And and the common yeah. words I was actually reading through uh, your description. 
Huh. And the common words that students were using to describe you were fun, comical, right? So my experience of you is that as well. Uh, interesting, uh, the class was useful and very challenging though. Like it kept coming back to the thing that it was really, really challenging. Uh, one person, he actually said, I took the quote, he said, the class was structured well. We had lectures in the first two days and did casework in the last class. Cases were interesting. My favorite part of the course was the strategy game. It was competitive and practical. Dr. O'Brien was great, knowledgeable and lighthearted. He worked us really, really hard, but in the end, it was worth it. So from my perspective, reading all this, you seem to have really high standards in your classroom, uh, but at the same time, have great relationships with your students. Now, like this is a coach's dream. So what's your secret <laughs> sauce here is to the high standards and strong relationships? You know, I, I you know, JP, I, I think you think about a lot of this stuff as well. So... And, and you're right. It's it's uh, that's actually lovely to hear. I, I didn't I didn't know that. But um, the for me at least, I spend maybe an inordinate amount of time in the first week um, when I get to meet my new set of students, which is a new group every um, every semester. Uh, I spent the entire first week on buy-in. Uh, I don't do anything with regard to um, content or syllabi or anything like that. I, I literally spend the first week talking about. The importance of why the class matters, why we're in it, um, what I'll be expecting them to do, um, that it's going to be quite a lot of work. And I, I keep talking about it. I don't just mention it. I mean, they're probably, you know, tired of the first way. When are we going to actually do something related to the course? And I'm like, well, when I feel like you've bought into what I'm trying to do. Um, and I, I don't know that, you know, when I talk to my colleagues, a lot of folks jump right in. You know, they'll start with, uh, at least when I was in when we were at university, it was the first day was kind of a syllabus day, you know, and it was often considered a bit of a write-off and people maybe didn't pay attention too much. But um, I, I wish going back maybe if, if maybe more time had been spent on why why the hell I'm there in the first place, you know, um, why is this important? And we I think we skip over, whether it's in business, a classroom, a team, a, you know, whatever it might be, we're not focusing on the why, um, because if you focus on the why, you'll focus on um, a shared goal or a shared reason for doing something. So I don't know if it's secret sauce or not, but I spend an awful lot of time, uh, one, laying out what's going to happen, two, um, what they'll be expected to do, and getting to know them, um, like really getting to know them. Like I want to know about their backgrounds, where they're from. Um, that, and that's not easy for me because I, I forget things, you know, names and things, but you have to spend if, – if, I think if the, if the folks on the ground feel like you care about them – um, they're likely to do a bit more and not feel like, and the, it comes back to the authority piece too. You know, I, I tend to be on first name basis with my students. Um, I'm a big believer that I, I want to be seen as part of the, a facilitator rather than some authoritarian figure telling them what the right answer is or telling them what to do. So, um, they're my team and I hold them to the same standard that I would hold myself and vice versa. So when I, if I have a bad day in the classroom, I'll tell them and we'll, talk about how we could do something better. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's secret sauce, but a lot of it is about buy-in. I focus quite a bit on buy-in. I love that. I mean, I think it's so often in like in the coaching world, you know, we're like, we feel this pressure, first practice, first week, we got to get content in. We got to get offenses, defenses in. But I even look, you know, and, and I ignored it for so long, but I think back on my experience playing football with you, like what brought me to that was yep. – I mean, we, the first week of buy-in and we were just meeting in a pub, you know, <laughs> like yeah. just and just was, getting relationships 
And then they threw me out on a football field in the rain and it's like freezing and it's cold. And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to be here, but I really like these guys and I want to be a part of this. Now, one of the reasons that I even got the idea to have you on the podcast was an article I had read in the newspaper about you using um, your work around case studies with your students to help them to kind of essentially deliver concepts and to teach them. So can you share a little bit about what that is with using case studies? Sure. Um, Well, I'll tell you how it started. I mean, I don't know how you guys, how your university experience was, but mine was sit in a lecture hall. um, There would be a lecture and you would sit there and kind of soak up information or maybe not soak up much information at all. That's how I went through. And that's what I saw in undergraduate and graduate school. And that's how I taught when I first got here to the college. I did the traditional lecture because that's all I knew. Um, and fairly quickly, maybe three years in, I realized, crikey, if I'm bored uh, with this, the students are probably bored too. So I started doing a bit of reading around other ways you might want to think about structuring a learning environment. And I noticed in the medical profession, they had been using a lot of what's called problem-based learning. And you might you might hear terms like experiential learning or whatever, but problem-based learning is, is the approach they use over there. So um, this really kind of appealed to me, the idea of instead of talking about content, for want of a better word, talking about um, solving problems instead and having solving problems be the focus of your time with people. So instead of having the classroom, which I think is the most valuable time you have with students, be focused on just kind of delivery of content, it be focused on problem solving. So that was kind of the first, that was where I had the first idea around well, to do that, what would that mean in a business class? And the most obvious uh, solution to that would be to use um, situations from business or case studies. And really all a case study is is a story about something. And then you're using that story to learn about whatever the principle might, might be. So so in my um, organizational behavior class, which you know the, the, usually the goal of a behavior class is to focus on human beings in an organization, and one of the cases I used in that class, I'll give you two examples. One of the cases I used was the BP oil spill down in the Gulf um, back in 2010, 2011, around then. Um, and that, that, that case explores um, all the things that had to happen for that disaster to happen, like the failures of decision making and the failures of the environment itself and the failures of the ethical environment itself. So th- basically, I, I thought that would be an interesting case to kind of use to explore those those principles, like what type of environment that we want to, how do we create a very reliable organizational environment? In that case, I thought did a nice job of exploring uh, of exploring that. I, I could talk more about environment later if you want. Uh, another case in that class, um, I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with um, human error. Um, because, you know, as we move more and more toward using artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of that stuff to make ourselves more efficient, um, when do we as human beings use, you know, I suppose the most valuable thing we have, which is our brain, to solve problems that machines can't solve? So when we do have to solve problems and we fail at doing that or we, we make errors, I'm very interested in knowing why we make uh, human errors. So one of the cases I used well, that, I, that I wrote up myself was around... Um, the the crash of Air France uh, uh, 447 back in 2009. And the reason I was interested in that particular accident is because there were three Irish women killed on board. They were medical students uh, celebrating down in Brazil. And Ireland, as you know, JP, is a very small country. So anytime there's a tragedy like that, it feels like the whole country knows about it or hears about it. And I became, I was always obsessed with, with, with airplanes and flying, but this thing kind of brought it home even more. 
So that case looked at what happened in that accident. And uh, to boil it all down, basically, it turned into um, these two pilots um, made a series of, of mistakes, a series of mistakes that most trained pilots would not make. And I was very curious why. Um, why they, they, they made the mistakes, what led them to, to make the mistakes. And really it was looking at um, some of those decision-making errors and biases, you know, that, that those folks had. So my goal oftentimes is to try to, one, pick an interesting story that, you know, you might be a, you know, call a page turner or whatever, some something to pick up and read and be interesting. And then to use that story in a way that can explore something like, you know, um, resistance to change or decision-making errors or leadership or biases or whatever, whatever it might be. So those are two of the cases I've used, but I use, you know, cases every semester. And I've used the Challenger shuttle disaster, for example, which I think is a very famous American example that I think everybody is familiar with the Challenger shuttle disaster. And it's a great case to explore group dynamics and groupthink and, and those types of things. So I try to pick a case that will explore a thing I want the students to know. Um, and hopefully the story is interesting to them to them as well, you know. So I can see like the connections here just even to sports, you know, the big push for a games-based approach to learning, you know, just where they're yes. being put more into the situation and learning. So engagement goes up, learning goes up, you know, all the, all the research shows that and, and sports. Why don't we dive into a little bit more of that kind of that aircraft investigation and the leadership lessons that you feel like you were learning from that because yeah. you're, try, you're working with future business leaders. Yeah. So what are you trying to teach them as leaders about maybe necessarily their approach to how they would create a culture where mistakes like those don't happen. So I think for me, um, like that particular, or any of the classes really, um, you know, I don't have, I don't have lofty <laughs> goals, um, but the goals I do have simply put are, is there a way I can, I can better prepare you for your professional life where if you take one or two or three things out of this class, you might think of it when you're on the job. Um, and, you know, since I've moved to this approach, the students seem to retain information. You know, I'll, I'll get a get a message from a student and they'll say something like, do you remember that case we did with um, BP or whatever? And I, I don't ever remember getting those messages when it was just the old fashioned content approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but take that case, for example. Um, realistically, that, that, that case looks at thinking about how we can make organizations more reliable. That That's kind of the goal of that case. You know, how, how we can make a group of humans uh, fail less. That's kind of the goal. So uh, one of the things is I always think for organizations to fail less, they need to be almost preoccupied or obsessed with failure um, from the perspective of what are the early warning signs? Uh, could we imagine how we might fail? Um, two, I, I think we're very, we're very keen to try to simplify things. Um, we, to try to understand things, we like to simplify things down to the, the, the easiest part of the equation. And, and I think for organizations that want to look at not failing, you need to be reluctant to simplify. Think we, we live in a, we live in, I tell my students two things. We live in a complex environment and we live oftentimes in an in a uncertain environment. And we can do a bunch of things to reduce, um, to reduce uh, uh, uncertainty, but it's very unlikely that we can reduce the complexity of the environment we live in. So oftentimes I think that it's it's not good to simplify uh, things down to you know the the, the easiest understood um, explanation. We we need to actually try to understand the nuance of the complexities that we're actually dealing with in in an organization or a group dynamic or a team or whatever it might be. Uh, three, you know, um, one of the things I notice where I work is a lack of sometimes understanding with regard to how the the big picture works. We tend to often focus on our own little piece of the pie. 
Um, so what I mean by that is understanding how your organization or your team fits together as a whole. So I think sometimes maybe if I was a, if it was a third one, sensitivity to the big picture of operations would be something I would I would kind of consider. And again, that's that's what this case was kind of looking at also. Um, three or, or sorry, four. I think um, learning about learning. Uh, I, I don't know if that if that makes sense, but um, a commitment to I don't. I'm not going to confuse the two words reliability and resilience because I think they're very very different things. Being resilient to me means that you're willing to learn about you know where you're weak. Um, and also, you know, the great example I, I would often share in classes, I don't know if you guys are tennis fans, but I'm a big Roger Federer fan. Um, and early in Federer's career, uh, his weakness uh, was commonly known was his backhand. His backhand was his weakness. He knew that, his opponents knew that. So in games, he was often, his backhand was often picked on. And slowly but surely, I mean, his serve was the best in the world. His forehand was the best in the world, but his backhand was weak. So... Over time, Federer worked on his backhand, and slowly but surely, it got better and better and better. And I remember there's a very famous interview where Federer thanked his opponents for then making his backhand one of the best in the world. And all of a sudden, you had a player that had no real discernible weaknesses, and of course, that's why he's one of the best tennis players of all time. Uh, Federer is resilient. He's very difficult to beat because he was able to pinpoint the area that he's weakest in. And oftentimes, I'll, I'll talk to my students in, from the perspective of, what are you weak at? You know, it, 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 that's a difficult thing to do because we don't like to focus on the things we're bad at. Oftentimes, it's much easier to focus on the things that we're very good at. The fifth thing and the final thing for, for that particular case, or at least when I'm thinking about takeaways, um, would be what I would call a, a kind of a deference to expertise. Um, oftentimes, the person in the authority role is not the expert. Um, and sometimes in organizations, we really struggle with you know, knowing when to delegate to the person who knows how to do the thing. Um, that can be a hit to our egos. It can be a hit to, well, I'll do the thing. You know, I, I should do the thing because I'm the boss or I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the authority piece. But oftentimes um, we have the expertise, but we're afraid to use it. And I, I would think that's another area where even in that, in that case, for example, you had two co-pilots flying that plane they should have they should have got that captain back in the cockpit almost immediately because he had thousands of more flying hours and you know um, but sometimes we're afraid well what are the consequences of saying I don't know how to do something or I don't know how to handle this situation or crikey will I get in trouble if I don't you know but it's different in you know flying a plane you've got people's lives at risk and you know most of our organizations we work in at least people's lives aren't at, at stake um, but I think um, a deference to expertise sometimes is a tricky thing for, for us to, to do. So from that particular case, I guess, um, those those five things would be the things I would I would I was trying to at least have the students think about when they go and work. Um, you had mentioned before using the Challenger disaster as one that a lot of Americans and students obviously are familiar with has yes. sort of become part of our cultural heritage. And. I've seen the movie kind of on the decision-making process. There was a movie made called The Challenger Disaster, and I just watched it actually over the summer. Yes. And it, it kind of reminds me of a couple of the things that you had mentioned here in terms of your takeaways from this other plane crash. But one of the things I think coaches struggle with when it comes to being able to make the best possible decisions for their team, and you see this in the, the, the flow of information in that Challenger situation, is that, as you said, the experts – the engineers that designed the O-rings had the concerns about whether or not they were going to be able to perform at the temperature that they were going to launch at. And yet it wasn't necessarily just about uncovering the information, but it was getting that information from the expert or from the ground level 
to be valued at the decision-making level. And when I think about the parallels to coaching, you know, are, are there strategies that you would share with our coaches about being able to harvest and appropriately value information from our players when either they might be resistant to sharing or we might be resistant to the value that we get from that on the field, you know, firsthand experience in a game context? There's a couple of things that in that situation weren't handled well that I think translate universally. Uh, one was, I think, effective management of conflict was 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 one of the things that I think comes out of that particular story. Um, you had you had management on one side that was that had this struggling shuttle program that that wanted to launch for cost reasons or dollar reasons, without really considering the human part of the equation was didn't seem to be considered. Uh, the, then you had the engineer, the experts on the ground saying, if we do this, there's a chance something will go wrong. Um, you had management say, but we've never had this problem before. Why? Why now? And it was push, push, push. And we've all been in that situation where. You you know of course a group we call it group think in, in the in the field or whatever but you know where there's pressure in the group to do what the group wants to do and in that situation of course it was launch the damn shuttle and of course we all know how the we all know how the story ends in tragedy um, but there was no real effective management of conflict from the perspective of taking those expert experts views and feeding them into the decision making process in a way that meant that they would change that decision so i think and you guys have 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 operated in the team sports situation where i'm sure we've all been a member of teams where you you there was no feedback mechanism it was it was just do it you know um and i'm not sure that's the most effective way of of managing a team so i think i guess what i would say there is what's what's the most effective way of managing conflict in the particular team you're in, and of course it might be a little bit different for every team. But that's that's the first question I would I would I would um, I would ask. The second thing would be um, what I would call procedural justice, and maybe you guys would call it something different. But I guess what I mean by that is that the participants of a group feel that they have the opportunity to express an opinion to the leader of the group, and that they will not be treated unfairly. Um, I mean that's basically what procedural justice is, but you take the challenger example that you you just used, Nate, and I think um, you have a situation there where I think those folks feared for their jobs and feared for their livelihoods. And when I do this case with students, I'll often ask them, we all know reading the challenger case what the right thing to do was, but how many of us would do the right thing if we have a family that we're trying to support and that we fear that we might lose our job? Or that we're in a situation where we've not spoken up before, but we're, you know, now is the chance. And maybe we'd, oh, maybe, oh, crikey, maybe things will work out. And maybe it's not as bad as I'm, you start to doubt yourself. Um, so in that situation where, one, you don't have effective management of conflict. Two, you have a situation where there didn't seem to be a procedurally just situation there for those people to kind of speak up. That's another, you know, that's another contributor where you're not going to have bottom-up uh, feedback or whatever. So they'd be three, maybe three of the things I take from the challenger case and kind of relate them to more, you know, broadly thinking about, you know, teams in general. Um, so Jay, just as we wrap up here, um, I was just curious if you could, maybe you had some advice, you know, from your sporting experience and what you've learned with through your research uh, and, and, and through your studies in, in the business world. What kind of, if you could give coaches in sports at the youth level, any piece of advice on something that you feel like that you see a lot of that they could probably do differently or do a better job of, what would that be? Um, crikey, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, 
maybe, you know, one of the things, maybe because I'm so preoccupied with looking at these, you know, case studies around disasters and things, one of the things I've noticed in anything that you do, um, when we fail, there's very rarely one root cause. Um, and oftentimes as human beings, we want to blame one thing. Um, and I think when we when we are evaluating a situation, if things have gone poorly, to try to be more holistic in what's actually gone on and maybe also being maybe more self-reflective from the perspective of um, how we have contributed to the situation also, asking ourselves the question, how have I contributed to this thing that's happened, whether it's good or bad? Um, and if it's bad, we often don't like to ask that question, right? If, if we don't get the result that we want, we tend to have this external locus of trying to blame external factors. Oftentimes, there's not just one, and most often, we're actually part of the, the equation as well. So that would be one thing maybe that would maybe cross over to the coaching world that maybe you guys have seen as well, that um, there's usually more than one thing going on, and I'm probably part of the problem too, if there is a problem. Now, that's it for our conversation with Dr. Jamie O'Brien. Now, Nate, one of the things that you've talked about extensively on the podcast is your mental health Wednesdays, right? And these are days where you, you meet with your team and you cover different things. Um, sometimes around culture. And one of the things that you do a lot of in those is, is using case studies actually with your team to help impart some lessons as well. Yeah, JP, you know, one of the ways that we try to engage our players in conversation that eventually may trace back to basketball, and quite honestly, sometimes it, it may not, is to engage players around a case study or a video or a, a story or something that might be in the news um, and the value for us, I think, in using a, a case study, whether it's an airplane crash or it's a story of another basketball team or it's an individual athlete story, is that you can talk about a context that your players are not in. So if there are leadership mistakes that you want to learn from. If you want to talk about you know, sensitive subjects like shame or disappointment or you know, embarrassment, like sometimes it's, it's intimidating to start with those things from our own personal experiences. So we find stories that we can talk about the story sort of from a third person perspective and then gradually work our way back toward, well, what does that feel like or what is that experience like for us? And I think there's lots of great resources, certainly on the Internet, to find stories that might be relevant for where your team is at. I mean, obviously, YouTube has millions of videos, but you can search for things like ESPN's Outside the Lines has a great YouTube channel that has 10-minute videos on all kinds of different sports interest stories that are really great. Some of them are really inspirational that you can play for your team and launch into a discussion from there. In the culture code, we, we learned that Greg Popovich would engage his team on issues like the, the Voting Rights Act or looking at historical anniversaries just to create some dialogue around issues that might be relevant to his guys. And I think that the more you can find those talking points to engage your team, uh, the more cohesive and the closer that they're going to get. Yeah, Nate, one of the things I love about the way that you approach those mental health Wednesdays, or as, as many coaches I work with call them culture days, uh, just kind of committing that once a week to to discuss things like that. But the thing I think you do really well is it's very organic process, right? And I think it's a temptation for many of us coaches that are planners to want to be like, week one, we're going to talk about this, and week 10, you know, like, but I think what you, you, you do and Greg Popovich does is you also have a pulse of what's going on with your team, but what's also going on around the world outside of them. You know, and I think that's what the cool thing about Popovich's story. So um, I just encourage coaches and that to always be thinking of what's going on in the world around them, because there's so many lessons that you can impart to your team 
outside of sports, even outside of the sporting world that we can share with them. Now, the other thing I thought was really, really great that what, what um, Jay shared with us was his classroom culture and how he was really intentional in the first week or two and making sure that he created an, an, the environment that he wanted to carry through the rest of the, the, the semester. And I think for us as coaches, we really struggle because there is so much stuff that we need to get in from a strategical standpoint and a technical standpoint within our sport in the first few weeks of practice. And we may not be have the freedom that maybe a, a college professor has because you know he's got the whole semester and his examinations may not come to the end of the semester. But I still think there's some great value in understanding that from day one and really that first week, you really want to find a time to really sit down with your team and start to have a discussion around what they want that experience to be like. You know, what type of team do they want to be a part of? And really start to implement your culture and your values from day one of the season. I think it's really important that we're doing that thing uh, and not just focusing on the strategical stuff that we want to put in. Now, if you'd like to learn more on how to do just that, to lay a foundation within your culture, I've created a culture transformation kit for you. It's a simple three-step process that we've used in many of the teams that I've worked with in the last couple of years when I come on site as their culture coach using player surveys, conversations with players, and a team meeting. You can lay a foundation for your culture in just three simple steps and take very little time away from the other important things you need to get done in your first week this season. So download the Culture Transformation Kit PDF by clicking on the link in the episode details um, of this podcast. All we need is your email and we'll send you this very simple document to lay your culture foundation at the start of every new season.